very few clients fully grasp the kind of replicatable habits that take time to perfect that self-discipline. It's very similar to attempting to diet or looking to build muscle. Those good financial baby steps compound into those much larger achievements. Financial decisions are endlessly complicated. There's a whole academic literature that tries to study them and improve them. And of course, there's a whole financial advisory industry that tries to help people improve their decisions as well. But there exists a divide between the two. I'm Hal Hirschfield, a professor of marketing, behavioral decision-making, and psychology at UCLA's Anderson School of Management. And on the behavioral divide, we study that gap and try to figure out what sort of insights can we learn to help people make better financial decisions. On the surface, the idea of self-regulation is quite simple. We know that if we want to achieve our goals in life, it's typically going to require some level of discipline. And yet, it's likely that we all can recall a time that we set out to make improvements in our lives but failed to stick with them. Perhaps it was a New Year's resolution to go to the gym three times a week or to go to sleep earlier each night. But regardless of the goal, the truth is that maintaining discipline just isn't always easy. On this episode, we explore ways that we might overcome the temptations that so often get in the way of achieving our financial goals. We ask the question, how can we increase self-regulation with our money? To get some answers, we look to the academic literature as well as speak with a financial planner. First up, I talk with Professor Johanna Peetz, an expert on self-regulation strategies for improving spending and saving habits. Today, we are very excited to have Johanna Peetz, a professor of psychology at Carlson University. Johanna, thank you so much for being here with me today. I appreciate it. Thanks for inviting me. So you, you've done some really fascinating work on what you and your collaborators have called financial self-regulation strategies, um, in part to resist financial temptations. I, I'm, I'm curious if you can just, you know, um, walk me through what you mean when you say self-regulation strategies. Sure. So people have financial goals, right? They want to save money or spend less. And uh, part of uh, the way they achieve these goals is to introduce some changes in their life that makes them less, <laughs> makes it makes it less likely that they will spend. For example, so I'm gonna I'm gonna give you some concrete examples here. So uh, someone who wants to save money for a vacation, for example, and knows they tend to overspend or they give in to temptations to buy really expensive clothes all the time. They might uh, employ spending strategies such as avoid going to the websites that sell the clothes they want, or they might delete all their credit card information from their online uh, uh, logins so that they just can't buy it in the moment. So these concrete strategies that change the architecture of the situation that makes it easier to resist temptation, basically. One of the things I, I love about your, your, your very recent papers on this is that you took three different perspectives in your work. You looked at these financial stra regulation strategies that are studied by academics, strategies that are recommended by the media, and then strategies recommended by everyday consumers. I'm curious where you saw overlap. And also, you know, the flip side, where did you see some mismatches there and some, you know, some, some gaps? So we definitely saw a lot of overlap. So more than half of the strategies that media recommended and that participants themselves described using in everyday life were the same kind of strategies that we saw in academic papers studied in labs. And uh, those were things like making a budget, thinking about the future, thinking about how much future self might regret or the benefits towards the future self, your own work. <laughs> so 
So those things really overlapped um, between what lay people thought and what academics were studying. But there were also a number of things that either didn't overlap at all. For example, both media and people themselves reported using their romantic partner quite intensely as a strategy. So they would say, oh, I'm going to give my credit card to my partner or check with my partner before I buy something. And, and that, to our knowledge, we didn't really see in the academic literature on spending yet. And there were also some strategies that were recommended by media and people mentioned using, like couponing or savvy shopping, which in academic studies turned out to be something negative rather than something positive. So it actually led to increased spending, even after accounting for the coupon price. There, were, there was also a mismatch in some of the strategies being recommended or used not actually being very effective on average for everybody, right? I'm, I don't question that perhaps some people are particularly good at couponing and they will come out on top, <laughs> but the average consumer might not actually benefit from doing what they think of as savvy shopping, but they might fall prey to some of the marketing strategies that are out there. It, it's so interesting to see where, where those overlaps are. You know, I think it's, it's fascinating to think about, you know, what insights just sort of regular consumers have and, and have used and, and seem to work that academics are completely blind to. I love the idea of, of bringing in that sort of accountability partner in the form of your, you know, of, of your partner. That, that's fantastic. Well, and the partner has a stake in it too, right? So they're probably a very effective coach and uh, co-collaborator in financial self-regulation. So, in, you know, in addition to that, I know you also mentioned that there's a difference between, I think you called it proactive and reactive strategies. Can you say a little bit more about the difference between those? And then, you know, I'm curious, where, where would you, you know, what would you bank on? What, what would you say are, are, you know, quote unquote, the better ones? I know that's probably a little bit oversimplifying, but which ones do you think? maybe work better there? So proactive strategies would be those that you do, that you employ before you even enter the tempting situation. So things that you do before you are faced with a potential purchase, whether to make it or not. So you're setting up your life in a way that you might not even encounter these things. As I said, like you might uh, avoid a store that you think is tempt has a tempting sale at the moment or so. And the reactive strategies occur in the moment. So they are strategies you employ as you're faced with a temptation. And there you might employ cognitive strategies. So you think about the purchase in a different way or you think about future regret or, or other things. But they're happening in the moment as you're faced. So you're reacting to the tem temptation in a certain way. And what I think and what our preliminary data so far shows is that the proactive strategies have an edge over the reactive strategies just because you employ them in a mindset where you're still in a cold rather than hot mindset, right? So you're perhaps a lot better at uh, thinking about ways, about reasons why not to buy something when you're not faced with the temptation right there. So, so far we found that if you ask people to list proactive or list reactive strategies they, um, and, and train them to use them over a course of a month, they were spending, uh, I think, $200 less on average during that month comparatively. That obviously can really add up. And it, I mean, it makes sense. Like you said, you're making those strategies in more of a cold state. It's then a little bit easier to make sure that you don't find yourself in the tempting situations where you then have to you know, all of a sudden do the extra work to put in the, the cognitive reappraisal and whatever it may be there. I, I would imagine, could it be the case that some combination of the two, right? I mean, I, I, I asked the question as if you they can only do one or the other. 
but I'm guessing, or have you found that some combination of the two is even far superior or is that not something you've looked at yet? Oh, I totally think you're right. I haven't looked at it, but I totally think you're right. And in part, I think that because uh, what trumps it all about what's the best strategy is whether or not it fits the person, right? Whether or not the person employing these strategies actually is suited to this type of strategy. So someone who doesn't plan ahead at all and doesn't even know where they're going and what purchases might be tempting and such, for them, proactive strategies wouldn't work, right? They might be much better off with reactive strategies. So the, I, I guess what I really found in my own research so far is that there is no one single strategy that you can re recommend that will work for everybody. It'll really depend on the person and it'll depend on the temptations, what will work best. So it has to fit with the person. That, of course, rings true. I mean, this is, you know, something we would know from from many other uh, marketing insights, right, is that the fit has to be there. Um, now, along those lines, you know, I'm wondering whether there may be a difference between self-generated strategies, so strategies that I employ myself versus ones that may almost be externally placed I, I don't I don't want to say forced upon me but 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 given to me by an external third party you know whether whether that's an advisor or a spouse or a friend or whatever it may be have you looked at all about the differences there or is that something that may be on the horizon to look at yeah we did look at that uh, we looked at whether or not instructing people to use six of the strategies we thought were the best possible strategies based on our research, like the biggest effect sizes in the research and so on. So we, inf we told some people to use those strategies for a month and other people we told to just write down six of the strategies they're already using and just use them more. And we found that those people who use their own strategies, so who self-generated strategies and use those more, really outperformed the ones that uh, we told strategies to. So even those even though those were the strategies we really believed were the best possible ones, <laughs> they didn't do as well as the ones that participants themselves generated, which I think is because of the fit, right? Like people just know themselves, they know what will work for them. And I also think it has something to do with just feeling more autonomously motivated, like feeling more like this is my own, like I have a stake in this. I, I'm, I'm deciding my own life here as opposed to just following orders, following the instructions of the experimenter. That resonates, uh, you know, that also, of course, makes it hard to figure out what is it that you actually tell people to do, although I would imagine that giving them the list of these different strategies may be a first step, and then they can start experimenting and figure out which ones work for them. Yes, I do think sometimes people don't even realize all the strategies they're using. So some of them might not be conscious, uh, they might not be using consciously. So if you ask them to write down, or even, I, I haven't tried the study, but I can imagine if you ask people to give advice to others, you know, they would probably come up with a whole bunch of great strategies <laughs> that if they themselves use those, they would work for them as well. If you're not calling this to mind consciously, you might forget about it or you might not use it as much as you possibly could. So you can do something, I think, to increase people's strategy use while still keeping that self-generated aspect of it intact. One of the things that I love about your your work and your your paper is that you've you've looked at how these different financial self-regulation strategies apply to spending decisions, which of course we've talked a lot about, as well as saving decisions. 
do they also apply to other sorts of financial situations? Like I could imagine the role that they might play in investment decisions, you know, whether I'm deciding whether to to jump into something that maybe I need to think about a little more deeply or or jump out of something when I actually should think again a little bit more deeply. Could Could those strategies apply there as well? Yes, I absolutely think they could. So that's a very interesting application, I think. Um, this also goes back to this hot-cold distinction, right? That sometimes we make decisions that are perhaps not optimal because we're in the moment and we're not thinking far enough ahead. So if you have this goal ahead of time, if you're telling yourself, I should not make risky investment decisions on the spur of the moment, on the, on the basis of what, where the market is at right today or recent changes, but instead I want to take a long-term view of my investments, then strategies, you could absolutely employ strategies um, such as telling yourself, okay, I'm going to wait a certain number of uh, days. I'm going to check with other people before I make those decisions. Like you could think of a number of strategies that might apply there that would help you make the decisions that you think are optimal while in a cold state of mind, while, while not just immediately active, and then employ them while being biased perhaps by all those changes that you're confronted with and where you're feeling urgency and uh, more risk-taking attitudes that you wouldn't have felt otherwise. I love, you know, what you're talking about there also circles back to the proactive strategies, right? Yeah. These are all about sort of setting things up in advance. Okay, well, one more question, if it's okay. If a consumer came to you, somebody calls you up or emails you or even drops by your office, which I guess would be a little strange, and they're looking for advice about how to exhibit better financial self-control or better financial self-regulation, what, what, would, what would you tell them? First of all, I would tell them to like really have self-compassion. Some people, if you, it really depends on how much um, available money you have, right? Like if there's no money to save, then you can't save money, right? It really would depend on people's financial situations. Sometimes there is just nothing to save. <laughs> so, so I would say like, okay, so if there is disposable income, you could uh, potentially be saving. You feel you're falling short of your goals. I would tell them to sit down and really think about all the ways that they uh, try to act in a way that promotes their goals and reduces temptation and really keep those things in mind and do more of that. That's a, that's a great answer. I thought you were first going to say, I would first ask why they were at my office, but that makes sense too. <laughs> Johanna, thank you so much for, for being here. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. Johanna's work offers some great insights on how we might deal with temptations that get us off track from reaching our financial goals. The framework of proactive and reactive strategies for self-regulation can be really useful in my mind. And it seems logical that proactive strategies would be effective for many people across many situations. Having guardrails that prevent you from facing temptation, like saying, I'm going to avoid the stores that I know I'm likely to make frivolous purchases at, makes a lot of sense. But it's of course important to recognize that we're not all the same and other approaches may be better suited to other people. In my second interview, I speak with Max Kajanian, a wealth advisor and financial planner, to hear what strategies he uses with clients and how those compare with what's been studied in the literature. Okay, today we have Max Kajanian. He's a financial advisor and certified financial planner with the Wealth Enhancement Group in Los Angeles, which is, of course, where I am too. Max, thanks so much for being here today. Of course. Thank you for having me, Hal. So there's this whole academic literature around, you know, what, what, we academics call self-regulation, uh, especially in the context of spending. And so I, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about where you see your clients struggle with self-regulation problems. 
Yeah. So I think self-regulation in the context of a client's kind of overall financial life can really be one of the, the largest challenges when attempting to build somewhat of a strong foundation for good habits. Uh, I mean, clients will come to me with really a fundamental understanding of what their overarching goals need to be, uh, but very few clients fully grasp the kind of replicatable habits uh, that take time to perfect that self-discipline. I mean, it's very similar to attempting to diet or uh, looking to build muscle. I mean, those, those are easily the end goals, but being able to build out those daily habits are what are going to allow you to achieve those end goals. So, I mean, those, those good financial baby steps compound into those much larger achievements. If you can tell me a little bit about where the this sort of specifics on self-regulation come in. So, you know, what are the some of the specific problems that you're seeing there? Yeah, no, I, w I would say that the simplicity of being able to tell a client to just save 30 percent of their gross income doesn't just happen. And the behavioral issues happen kind of on both sides of the barbell. So. You have young people who are fairly high earners, particularly here in California, um, and they have a really hard time separating fixed costs from their variable costs. And they really have an even harder time trying to quantify what those variable costs are. A lot of that has to do with the fact that their lives are a constantly moving target. I mean, as they continue to grow their income, they start to see a lot of lifestyle creep um, as they move into looking to buy their first home or have their first child. All of those things really throw off kind of what their expected variable costs are. So that ends up being probably the largest challenge for younger savers is they just don't even have the blueprint to understand what their their goals are and what the spending actually needs to look like. And I would say it's it's fairly similar even on the other side of, of the uh, the barbell, meaning those who are getting into retirement, they've had a paycheck their entire lives and they haven't really had to think about what withdrawal mode is going to look like, you know, how much they actually need to be spending from their their various tax deferred and after tax and taxable uh, pots of money. Um, and that creates some, uh, you know, financial uncertainty on their end as well. So, you know, I, I love your concept of sort of both sides of the barbell here. And it seems like if there's a common theme, and I, I feel like you're sort of bringing one out, it's the, you know, the, the sort of difference between expectations of spending and the reality of spending. Am I, am I getting that right? That is absolutely correct. I mean, it's again, it's it's fairly simple to assume you are building out some sort of average spending rate uh, on a on a daily, monthly, or yearly basis. But very rarely does that simplicity kind of come to fruition. Uh, you know, you have all of these unexpected expenses. Uh, life becomes more expensive in many cases. Um, so being able to quantify and then have the self-regulation or self-discipline to stay within the parameters of what your goal spending looks like tends to be hard for savers on all sides of the spectrum. 
So, you know, I'm, I'm wondering if you can talk to me a little bit about how you have conversations around these issues, um, around the issue of self-regulation with spending and at different stages of the, the lifespan and whatnot. What does that conversation look like with your clients? Yeah, absolutely. So the conversation for myself tends to be very, fairly open-ended especially in kind of the preliminary conversations with, with new and prospective clients. Um, no two clients are ever going to be the same. And my job is certainly not to lecture anybody on the tenets of financial planning. Uh, so the education process really kind of revolves around where their insecurities are and their financial insecurities are very much kind of exposed by these sorts of open-ended conversations. Uh, you know, most importantly, you want to know what their family life looks like, what their work life looks like, and really anything else that drives them. Because, you know, not all goals are the same, and the conversations have to be kind of characterized by, by what is important to that particular client. And it's not always just, I want to have X amount of dollars so I can spend Y in retirement. It could be, I want to retire much earlier than, you know, the average American because I have extraordinary interests in building cars or playing music or doing art or whatever it might be. And my goal is to define what the uncertainties are, what drives this particular client, and then kind of retroactively build a plan around those particular goals. I, I feel like appreciating the idiosyncrasies here has to matter. And I, I, it sounds like a very smart strategy and one that the academic literature would probably support as well. I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about what strategies have you suggested that have helped your clients? You know, what, in other words, you know, what seems to work? And, and on the flip side, what hasn't worked? <laughs> yeah, I, I would say uh, it's very much a trial and error because every client's uh, ability to kind of grasp the behavioral discipline um, is going to be different. So some people take longer to do so. Some people kind of, they perfect it immediately. Um, and a lot of that just comes down to really the simplest core pieces of financial planning. So the first thing that I always suggest when I'm working with clients is to define what your expenses actually look like. You need to spend three to six months using one single credit card or one single bank account or one single debit card so that you have an idea of what those expenses actually look like. And a few weeks or a month or two months very rarely allows those expenses to average out with all of the unexpected costs that happen over you know, a quarter or about half of a year. So being able to use kind of one single pot of money and then look at that average over time, that begins to build out at least the foundation of what your expenses should actually look like. So it does take time. I think being able to visualize what those expenses look like over a period of time using, again, that single piece of, of financing tends that tends to help people understand really what that's supposed to look like. 
Max, I think that's great advice. And I love the idea of actually taking a data-driven approach almost <laughs> to this. And and the single credit card is, or the single debit card, whatever it may be, is so smart because then you're not having to sort of piece together the puzzle there on your own. Exactly. And then, I mean, after that, it ends up being kind of automation. The, the goal for clients, once they have the, the budgeting foundation or building blocks, is to then be able to automate so that they don't necessarily get in their own way when it comes to the actual saving portion of the, of the planning. So, I mean, planning theory and behavioral finance usually suggests kind of the process of generating income, paying those expenses that you have, and then saving what's left. And I'm actually a fan of doing that in the reverse. I will generally suggest that a client has the savings kind of moved into an account that's out of their reach. So whether that is just a taxable brokerage account or even just a simple savings account, what that allows is, again, the client to be able to visualize how many dollars they actually have left to budget with. So it becomes, again, kind of a behavioral finance ability to remove the blinders or at least get out of your own way to be able to spend the dollars that they have in their account. And once those dollars are gone, they have the savings already somewhere else safe and sound for an emergency. That's fantastic advice. Uh, save first, spend second. I love it. Max K. Janian, thank you so much for being here with us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, Hal. You could probably tell that I love that discussion with Max. His approach is thorough, starting with helping his clients gain a firmer grasp on their actual spending habits, and then focusing on automating savings first before considering what money is available for essentials and discretionary spending. I think it's safe to say that there were some obvious elements of overlap between what Johanna has found in her work and the types of strategies Max is implementing. Both acknowledge the importance of understanding the quote-unquote individual, their unique circumstances and goals, as well as their ability to grasp different self-regulation strategies. Max added to the discussion that people can have very different challenges based on where they are in their life and how their financial needs evolve over time. But what I found really interesting is that once Max has worked through the foundational aspects of a financial plan with his clients, he then focuses on the same proactive strategies that Johanna has found work well like, for instance, automated savings. My key takeaways from these discussions are that one, there are a variety of strategies that really seem to be effective in helping increase self-regulation when it comes to money. Johanna and Max together offer several that they've found work. And if our personality lends itself to proactive strategies that keep us from those situations that we're likely to fail in, then that can certainly help. And two, recognize that we all likely already have strategies that we use today whether consciously or unconsciously. And as Johanna noted, even just taking stock of those so that we can use them with intention can make a difference. All right, thanks so much for listening to The Behavioral Divide. I hope you found the discussion useful and found some strategies for self-regulation that you can put into practice with your own money or with clients. I'd also love to hear from you. You can find my email in the show notes, so feel free to drop me a note if you have other strategies that you found work well or if you'd like to offer feedback on the podcast. Thanks again for listening. You've been listening to The Behavioral Divide, brought to you by Avantis Investors. 
This material has been prepared for educational purposes only and is not intended as a personalized recommendation or fiduciary advice. It's not intended to provide and should not be relied upon for investment, accounting, legal, or tax advice.